0: Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Lars Svensson. I'm chairman of the Heart, and Vascular, and Thoracic Institute here at the Cleveland Clinic, and with me is Marjan Koparaniuk. He's one of our great and outstanding surgeons. He spent a lot of time with us doing research and then did his general surgery training here at the Cleveland Clinic and then went to one of the leading institutions in Pennsylvania for further training. And we brought him back here and he's doing just a great job and taking over a lot of the practice in aortic surgery and aortic valve surgery as we transition a lot of care to our younger and outstanding surgeons so let me start off Marjan, and ask you when it comes to your interest in aortic valve and aorta how did that start out
1: thank you for having me here but um, it started basically from the beginning when i started my research here is looking at how many of the surgeons, especially you, operate and how much skill and technique is required to these um, these advanced procedures for the betterment of the patient, to increase the quality of the life, to save the valve, is it was just depressing and it was uh, fascinating. It was something I wanted to do and challenging.
0: Good. So let's ask you a bit about preserving the valves. Let's start off with the reimplantation operation. What are your insights into keeping the valve and reimplantation?
1: Well, uh, reimplantation is, as we would call it, one of our favorite surgeries we like to do in aortic surgery because it requires a fair amount of skill and understanding of the valve. And the benefits for the patients are great, because the alternative, if you cannot try to save the valve or repair it, you would need to replace it, which would mean either anticoagulation with a mechanical valve or a biologic valve that would kind of entail another surgery down the line. So saving a valve really means a lot to the patient, and that could potentially aim to be a lifelong surgery and uh, preserve its natural valve for a long time. There are many technical considerations in aortic valve repair surgery, and that really depends on the morphology of the valve, whether it's a bicuspid valve, whether it's a tricuspid valve. And then what's the pathology of the valve itself? Is it leaking? Uh, And how and why is it leaking and how we can repair it based on that?
0: Yes, the reimplantation operation is a very good operation, as we've proven with our study of our patients. We certainly well over twelve hundred patients with reimplantation operations. We're probably up to about one thousand three hundred now, and the results we analysed that fairly recently in subgroups. So, for two hundred and fourteen patients with connective tissue disorders, mainly Marfans but also lowest deeds, the freedom from reoperation at ten years in that series is ninety seven percent, incredibly good. And so that means that out of 100 patients we've operated on, 97 still have their own valves functioning well 10 years after surgery. And at 20 years, my guess is it's going to be still in the 93, 95% will have their own valves. Essentially, we will have repaired the valve, kept uh, that mechanism intact of the valve for patients, uh, and I would expect that will be a lifetime a solution for them. I like to say that uh, it comes with a 100,000 mile guarantee for uh, the repair. Um, and in the non-connected tissue disorder patients, the freedom from re-operation was 93%, also very good uh, results. There's some reasons uh, for those slight differences. But essentially, the reimplantation operation solves the long-term problem of requiring otherwise a mechanical valve in patients who have enlarged roots and leaking aortic valves. For the bicuspid valves, the results aren't quite as good, but run in the 90, 91% freedom from reoperation at uh, 10 years. All right, do you wanna talk a bit about bicuspid valves? You see now a lot of bicuspid valve repairs and your insights from that.
1: Regarding the difference between the what we call a standard tricuspid and a bicuspid valve repairs is that bicuspid valve functions differently. While in tricuspid valve, technically you want to have nice coaptation line between those three leaflets and a bit of a redundancy between them. In a bicuspid valve, we really want more tension actually between those two leaflets. And whether you can do bicuspid valve repair without necessarily doing reimplantation or a root procedure. Or just you can do repair itself within the
0: native root if it's not dilated, those principles kind of stay the same. Principles of repair with a bicuspid valve versus a three leaflet valve are very different. So, with a three leaflet valve, you've got leaflets that are separated and they leak, and so the reimplantation operation is very effective in bringing those together. With a bicuspid valve, the mechanism of competence is very different. So, you have two leaflets. And the way you make them competent is to stretch them rather than bring them together. And so you've seen now lots of repairs, you've seen how those principles apply to bicuspid valves and the stitches we put in, including what we call a figure of eight hitch up stitch. So this is a stitch on the commissures that we use to hitch up the leaflets to a higher level. Long term results are better with um, hitching up the leaflets for bicuspid valves. So we try to put the biggest graft as possible
1: for those leaflets to stretch them. Quite often those leaflets are still redundant. And then we put those figure of eight stitches that we actually uh, call them also Svensson sutures, just so we know.
0: (laughs) All right, Uh, let's talk a bit about the aortic arch. Uh, You've been doing a lot of cases now, you have to do the acute dissections and seen a lot of arch operations. Uh, You want to talk a bit about what you've learned from aortic arch surgery?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, there are many ways that we can do arch surgery now, and we have a lot of tools to do it. One of those is where we do use stents uh, in these open arch cases, trying to eliminate any subsequent surgeries down the line the point of the whole arch surgery is address the aneurysm or a dissection. You do have to be fairly expeditious and efficient because time on the circulatory arrest is important as our outcomes as we know. The key is to have a good plan before the surgery and have all of the tools available and effectively and quickly address the problem of the arch. One of the also key points once the arch is addressed, whether it's uh, with a what is popular now here that we do a lot to be safer technique, or the standard zone one or zone two or tall large replacements with the graft, uh, is also uh, making sure during the circulatory arrest time you have fairly good perfusion or protection of the brain, and as well as you are coming out of the circulatory arrest is actually the airing and cleaning all the breathment from the arch, so you minimize embolic event. The whole arch surgery kind of, um, in my prospects, is uh, most important part is prevention of the stroke. Minimize that as much as possible. Uh, I always tell to our patients, if we have bleeding, if you have issues with the heart, we can fix those things. But stroke, once it happens, we can't do really much about it except give it the best, uh, as much time as possible to recover from itself. The whole arch surgery be pretty much, we are pretty good technically to address all of it and fix it, but it's actually to minimize this uh, one complication that is most significant, and that's a stroke.
0: Yeah, so that's an important point. And many years ago, uh, I did a study on uh, patients with aortic arch uh, surgery, some 600 patients, and looked if we could improve outcomes. We learned a lot from that. The gold standard using what's called the elephant trunk procedure, something that we spent a lot of time developing over the years, and we've done multiple papers on this too, showing how one can improve the results with a total aortic arch replacements. And then the, the second stage operation after the so-called elephant trunk procedure, when we leave an elephant trunk, which is a tube in the aorta beyond the artery to the left arm for the next operation, and patients have big aneurysms. And the descending aorta, or what we call the thoracoabdominal aorta, so you want to make some comments about using stent grafts now for second-stage operations or replacement of the descending or thoracoabdominal aorta, whether you use endovascular, which is going through the groin with a stent graft, or a, a open operation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is where the aortic surgery
1: started to go uh, further and further where the advances kind of led us. And this is uh, that we cannot just think acutely, let's say, in, uh, dissection situations or in aneurysm and just address potentially the aneurysm that's present at that time in, let's say, zone one or zone two arch. But we also have to think what can happen down the line and afterwards. And if there is already some aneurysmal dilation on the remaining aorta, in this case, we have to think about what we call quite frequently now a second stage. So what's going to happen with the patient in the future? And what should we do what's best for the patient Try to minimize operations uh, for that patient? So what we did in art surgery, as you said, we perfected this elephant trunk procedure. So we have kind of a mobile elephant trunk, which was the first as we did it, where we push a graft into the descending aorta. And now more recently that we start doing frozen elephant trunk, where we don't put a graft to kind of float in the aorta, but we actually deploy a stent into the aorta that is a little bit more fixed. And what that provides us when the patient has aneurysm dilation in the rest of the aorta, in the lower chest and the abdomen, is that we don't necessarily have to right away, if there's aneurysm dilation in the area, go and do another open heart surgery or open chest surgery. But that stent provides us, that elephant trunk provides us, is a good landing zone for us to actually deploy endovascularly a stent within that uh, previous either stent or graft, and then lay a series of stents down all the way to the abdomen, excluding the aneurysmal dilations uh, within the thoracic aorta. This way, patient pretty much comes to the hospital the day before and leaves from the hospital in two, three days without any major uh, incisions, just a groin little prick, or uh, as you would say, needle stick from which we, uh, what we use as an access to deploy all these stents. So that's a kind of a attractive way of dealing with these injuries nowadays before we had to do everything open. And you know, know that very well as you're the leader in that area and you were doing both of these approaches where you had to be pretty much to address any of these problems, make a huge torque of abdominal incision that would go pretty much from the scapula behind your back all the way down to the abdomen to the groin.
0: Yeah. So Marjan touched on a few important points in what he commented there. So one of the big problems with descending and abdominal aneurysm repairs is the risk of paralysis afterwards. And we did a lot of research on trying to reduce that risk. And we were able, with the methods we use here, particularly with spinal fluid drainage, so it's called CSF, and drainage of the spinal fluid during the operation and the part of the stay in ICU, and using a drug to put that into the spinal space and improve blood flow to the spinal cord during the operation and after the operation, we've been able to significantly reduce the risk of paralysis after those type of operations, which obviously is a dreadful complication. And we've shown that that's effectively uh, reduces the risk. at the American Association of Thoracic Surgery, uh, I was asked to talk about our experience, and we had about 2,500 patients who had descending thoracoabdominal abdominal operations, and in the patients who had open procedures, we had a very low risk of paralysis using the techniques we've described. So let me go back to something that you touched on, which is an enlarged aorta and another operation, or for that matter, the first operation. So how do you decide when a patient needs the ascending aorta, aortic root uh, to be operated on replaced? So what do you use as um, sort of numbers or guides for that?
1: So when we have this aneurysmal dilation and patients come to us with different kind of uh, sizes, uh, primarily one of the first important things to mention is that the sizing of the aorta is made best, and the gold standard for that is the CT scan. Quite often we get these measurements based on the ultrasound of the heart, which are not as reliable, and sometimes can confuse patients if they have different kind of methods of measuring that show different numbers, which is not unusual. But the CT scan one is the one that we looked at and uh, make it the gold standard for sizing the aorta. Now in terms of sizes, um, you already kind of touched a little bit on it, and this is already about 4.5 centimeters In specific cases of connective tissue disorders, we start looking at those patients as they might need to have their root or aorta replaced because already at 4.5 in uh, patients like Marfan's population, they already start to have pretty significant risk of dissection rupturing of that aorta, which is a life-threatening situation that everybody wants to avoid. While in the normal population, the number around 5 centimeters and higher is the number that we start looking in the root and the ascending aorta that will indicate us for going to replace it at that time point. Also, there are other factors that we need to look at. That's patient age. If we are kind of a borderline aortic size, let's say 4.8, but patient is very young, and we do expect, of course, uh, that aneurysm to grow as uh, patient ages, so we might pull the trigger a little bit sooner. Uh, Same as if the patient is physically active uh, and also doesn't want to limit his physical activity due to those things. Second, or actually we are now on third and fourth, I guess, factors is also the size of the patient. And this is where you describe your index, if you want to tell us a little bit about it.
0: Yes. As Marjan pointed out, in patients with connective tissue disorders above 4.5 centimeters, we start asking questions and doing genetic analysis too. So in patients who have lowest DEETs, we would certainly look at uh, those patients from the point of view of surgery after 4.5 centimeters and bigger for somewhere of, let's say, average size. And for patients with Marfan's, who've got a family history of aortic dissection, 4.5 centimeters and larger, we usually recommend surgery. If there is not a family history of dissection and Marfan's, usually about 5 centimeters. But we do take into account a patient's height. So we have this formula that we use. So it's the cross-sectional area in square centimeters divided by the patient's height in meters. And if that ratio is above 10, then we recommend surgery. And we apply that also for patients, for example, with bicuspid valves and root aneurysms or ascending aortic aneurysms. And we know patients who have enlarged roots, which is where the aortic valve sits, part of the root, in those patients they have a higher risk of developing complications and dissection. And so that is another measure that we then look at. In patients who have had previous heart surgery, it depends on a patient's age, but uh, for example, in a patient's had previous heart surgery and young, we'd look at reoperating for about 5.2, 5.3 centimeters. Part of the reason for that is they have scar tissue from previous surgery, which somewhat protects them from rupture of the aorta. So yes, as Marjan said, we do factor other things into deciding when to operate in a patient. And that's why it's always good to get an opinion from a surgeon. So thank you for joining us. I hope you found this discussion useful for you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast.